Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. This is a little bit different uh, this year in dealing with uh, this time of Advent as we are in the book of Revelation because we are actually considering the risen Christ who has come. And so we have been looking in this series, The Apocalypse of Jesus Christ to the Seven Churches, and we began by exploring the significant terms of the word revelation and apocalypse, uh, emphasizing uh, the inherent nature of these two words and how that they are essentially the same word, and they are synonymous with one another. Revelation and Apocalypse. So it could be called the Revelation of Jesus Christ, the Apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the Revealing of Jesus Christ, the Unveiling of Jesus Christ, and this is the Revealing, the Unveiling of the Risen Christ. And so the central focus of this unveiling is revealed in the opening line that simply says, the Revelation of Jesus Christ. This book has been used for a lot of different purposes, but one of the things that so many people have missed, especially in modern times, that the book of Revelation is about the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the conquering king, the one who is risen and now sits on the throne at the right hand of the Father, where all power and all authority has been granted unto him both in heaven and on earth, This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. This divine disclosure originates originates from the risen, exalted, and conquering king that is seated on the heavenly throne with ultimate authority. The book of Revelation is a continuous unveiling. It is not a static glimpse into the future, but it's actually a look at the past, present, and future from John's point of view, as we see later in this first chapter. But it's not a static glimpse into the future, but it's a dynamic manifestation, a revealing, an apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the conquering king, spanning from the first century to the consummation. It serves as a prophetic historical account chronicling the spiritual war from Christ's coronation to the eventual delivery of the kingdom to his father. The trinity of time, he who is, who was, and who is to come, guides our understanding of this revelation. Far from it being a speculative exercise, the exploration of revelation calls believers to practical allegiance and obedience to the king of kings. So this divine account unfolds in three dimensions. The past seen by John, the past witnessed by John, and the future events revealed unto John. 
And so commencing with the revelation of Jesus to the seven churches in Asia, this series has now progressed to Sermon 4, Part 4 of the Introduction. Because where we are looking to get is to chapters 2 and 3, where we will begin dealing with the message of Christ to these specific churches there in Asia and see what we can learn from them. So as we look in this book, it urges us to be like the sons of Issachar, understanding the times and knowing what to do. And so we find emphasized here in this book, blessings upon those who heed, who keep, and who act upon the prophecy that is revealed herein. And so that's what we want to do. And I hope that you will join with me in this ongoing unveiling where timeless truths guide present actions and, and shape future hope. Look in verse number 9. Actually, let's begin in verse number 12. From where we left off last time. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a gold band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters." He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches." Here, in the unfolding of this chapter, our gaze is fixed upon the revelation of the conquering king. This is the risen Christ being revealed unto the apostle John in all of his majesty, glory, dominion, and might. This is the revelation of the risen Christ who is seated on the throne as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And so today, our focus is to draw back the veil even further to see and to understand the majestic and conquering King, Jesus Christ. Remember the Apostle Peter in his sermon on the day of Pentecost said, This same Jesus whom you have crucified, God has made both Lord and and Christ, and in the context of his sermon, we see that what he's talking about is taking the throne of David. And so this is the risen Christ 
who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the conquering king. And we notice several things about him. And we began looking at the seven golden lampstands a few weeks ago. And if you remember, we looked at the completeness of them, these seven churches, and how they were a complete lampstand. We also saw the unity and the diversity among them and how that they were radiating the light of Christ and how that we are to do so today as the church of Jesus Christ as they were engaged in that ongoing spiritual battle and so against the forces of darkness. And then we begin looking at the Son of Man, who is in the midst of the seven lampstands. Christ, as the Son of Man, stands in the midst of these lampstands, representing his active presence in his church. Jesus Christ is actively present. Now, unfortunately, the church today has lost faith in that fact. And we do not believe that Christ is really present. I mean, Christianity has became kind of a, a kind of folklore. It's kind of uh, just one of those things like we tell our kids with bedtime stories and things of that nature. And we don't really understand the active presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of his church and throughout the world. But here he is in the midst of these seven churches. That's what John is showing us, that Jesus Christ is there in the midst of them. He is involved. He is engaged. And he is active. And so what we see here is the Son of Man's presence and its significance. It signifies his active involvement and a careful inspection of the spiritual condition of these churches, which is what we're trying to get to, right, in chapters 2 and 3, because he is going to make some analysis concerning these churches in areas where they are not being faithful and then give them credit where they are being faithful. But he is making a careful inspection of them So careful, as a matter of fact, that he says that if they don't repent in the areas where they have fallen short and be completely devoted and committed to him, that he would remove their lampstand. That's a scary thought, but that's what we're going to be getting to. Because when we look across the United States and Western civilization, lampstands are being removed very dramatically. In our present day, churches closing all over the place, people fleeing. And so he's making a careful inspection of the spiritual condition of these churches and giving them warning. Also, he is signifying his authority over the church and also providing comfort to them in times of trial. But we see, next of all, that he's clothed with a garment down to his feet, his His attire reflects his priestly authority. We believe in three offices of Jesus Christ, that he is prophet, priest, and king. And here we see the uh, attire that he is wearing signifying his priestly authority and righteousness. We can look back to the Old Testament practices and the long garments that the priests would wear, symbolizing their authority and their moral purity. And this image aligns with the prophecies and challenges challenges believers to embrace their identity 
as a holy priesthood. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that's revealed to Jesus or to John by Jesus that he has made us kings and priests. Oh, would to God that that would be restored throughout Christianity. Kings and priests under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. The world would definitely be a different place. Uh, Third, we see that he's girded about the chest with a golden band. And this detail emphasizes his kingly nature of his rule. The golden band symbolizes authority and readiness, drawing parallels to ancient conquerors and echoing themes of righteousness and faithfulness found in scripture. We see that his hair, uh, his head and hair were white as snow like wool. And of course, the whiteness symbolizes purity, wisdom, and eternity. It's a powerful visual representation that aligns with biblical passages that emphasize Christ's absolute purity divine wisdom, and eternal nature. And he has eyes like the flame, like a flame of fire. Uh, we are told, if you have eyes like a flame of fire, you can imagine that like penetrating, right? We are told that the word of God penetrates into the most inner recesses of man's heart and soul. And so his eyes are like a flame of fire discerning the deepest intentions of our hearts. And his feet are like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, symbolizing his judgment and authority. Refined in a furnace, they signify the purity of Christ's judgments and his unassailable sovereign authority. He has the voice as the sound of many waters, an authoritative voice, not a weak Mamby, pan, uh, I can't even say it, uh, Namby, uh, Pamby, something like that, uh, voice. No, he has the voice as the sound of many waters, an authoritative voice. And his word goes forth in that same authoritative voice. It is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. He is the voice of authority, which underscores his sovereign dominion. And of course, in his right hand are seven stars, showing his control over the messengers of the seven churches, which also symbolizes his authority and protective care. The right hand, of course, a symbol of strength and authority, underscoring Christ's governance over the leadership of the churches. And then out of his mouth, a sharp two-edged sword, symbolizing the word of God that is sharp and powerful and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's the reason why when the word of God goes forth, it brings conviction in our hearts. And so, finally, we see His countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. His countenance, like the sun, it's bright. It signifies his divine glory and illuminating brilliance. That which cannot even be looked upon because it is so bright and majestic. And then secondly, 
after we considered the Son of Man, I want us now to look at the response of the Apostle John falling at the feet of the glorified Christ. This is John's response, which, by the way, is worship, because this is what worship is. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ and then the response of man to that revelation. And so notice in verse number 17 that it says that when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. This is the response to the one who has all power and all authority in heaven and on earth. We are told that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. This is the proper response at the revelation of Christ. When we truly see Christ unveiled, this risen Christ who is exalted at the Father's right hand, it should, call, it should cause us to fall down before him. First of all, to fall down in true humility. And secondly, to fall down in reverence. But this was John's response. Remember, this is the John who laid his head on Jesus at the supper. Remember, this is the John who was with Jesus throughout his earthly ministry. And when he saw the resurrected, the risen Christ seated upon his throne in all power and authority, he fell down on his face as if he was dead. This shows the exaltation of Jesus Christ in all of its power and glory that he falls at his feet. And this is the response to divine majesty. We have been conned and we have been deceived in this day and time, this deconstructed age, this day and age of irreverence, this day and age of no authority, no order, this day and age of anarchy, we have been conned into thinking that Jesus is still that little baby in a manger. We celebrate that Jesus Christ came, born of a woman, that he was born as a baby in a manger to come into the world in order to reconcile a fallen world and sinful man back to God the Father. But he is not that little baby In a manger. He is the risen Christ who has been exalted at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Who has all power and all authority in heaven and earth. He has all power and all authority to say who is going to enter into his kingdom. Who is going to enter into eternal life. And he has all power and all authority to damn those who will not. Believe in him and repent to eternal damnation. That is the one who is being unveiled. That is the one who is being revealed to us. And if it doesn't cause us to humble ourselves before the Lord, 
like that publican in the temple, where across from him was standing that Pharisee who was saying, I'm glad I'm not like other men. And then he starts listing all their sins. And then he starts listing all of his good deeds. But there's the publican over there in the corner. He can't even lift up his eyes towards heaven. And he just cries out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is a man who understands. Jesus said to the multitude, which of the two will go home justified? And Jesus said, not the Pharisee, the publican. Why? Because he saw God in all of his glory and holiness and power and might. And he knew his only response was to fall down before the Lord in true humility. And so when John sees Jesus in all of his glory, he falls down on his face like he's dead. With profound awe and reverence. Christ's appearance humbled John. And the revelation of Jesus Christ should humble us. It should cause us to humble ourselves before the Lord. James said, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And we find this all throughout scriptures. Whenever men would encounter the divine, whether it was an appearing of Jesus Christ or whether it was an angelic presence, we see these same kind of reactions over and over again, responses of humility when the majesty of the divine is unveiled. And so when we recognize Christ's sovereignty, it should cause us to bow down before him and confess that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. It should bring humility to us to bow before the risen king, to fall at his feet and surrender to his rule and reign. And so John's act of falling at the feet of the glorified Christ is a powerful portrayal of the appropriate human uh, reaction uh, to encountering God. Whenever God was revealed to man, we see this response all throughout Scripture. And we see it here as well, even with the Apostle John. But notice, he falls down as dead before the feet of Christ. And notice the response of Christ. He says in verse number 17, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to him, Do not be afraid. The glorified Christ responds tenderly to John, who humbles himself, who is subservient, who submits himself to the revealed Christ. 
He responds to John tenderly, providing reassurance that eases fear and imparts deep truths about his nature, authority, and triumph over death. Because he just doesn't tell him to be afraid. He gives him something to rest in. Gives him something to stand on. Not just mere sentimental words of do not be afraid, but do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. Don't be afraid. That's what Jesus says to his servants. Don't be afraid. We live in a world where most of the church is living in fear. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. One of the reasons is one of my favorite verses in the book of Proverbs. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. False hopes that never come about make the heart sick too. But um, there's a lot of fear. And we look around and we see everything crumbling all around us. In Western civilization, I mean, think of this. Um, Western civilization... We refer to it as Christendom. Why? Because all of Western civilization was Christian. But it is no longer Christian. And so we see all of these things eroding away. We see a church that is weak and powerless and seemingly ineffective to make any headway and to cause any change into this descend into the abyss that we are experiencing. And so Christians have all this fear, but listen, if we see the unveiled Christ in all of his glory and all of his majesty and all of his power, and we fall down understanding that he is truly the supreme one, that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, We will hear these words, don't be afraid, because I'm the first and the last. The book of Hebrews says that all the kingdoms of the world are going to be shaken, and there's only one kingdom that is going to remain, and that is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Yes, he is the first and the last. He will be the last man standing. All his enemies shall fall. He's the first and the last, he says. And then notice he says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And then he says, let it so be. Amen. And then he says, I have the keys of hell and death. Therefore, write these things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. You see, to all those who surrender to his rule and reign, he has words of comfort. Words of comfort that he's the author and the finisher of our faith. Words of comfort that he is forevermore. That he is the risen Christ. Words of comfort that he possesses the keys of hell and death. Which means that he is the one that can unlock those prisons. 
and set the captives free. He has words of comfort. Do not be afraid. So we should not fear in Christ's presence if we truly see him revealed. And if we respond in true humility and surrender, we need not fear his presence. Because he has words of comfort to his followers that he is the conquering king. He has conquered sin, death, and hell. He has conquered Satan. He has conquered this world. We have comfort in the assuring words of Jesus Christ. That is one of the reasons why We proclaim certain things in our worship services. And we proclaim God's holiness, man's sinfulness. And then we call upon sinners to repent and turn to the Lord. And then what do we do? We proclaim words of assurance. That God will fulfill his promises. That he will do what he has promised. He has promised that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He gives us words of encouragement for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Words of assurance to all those who humble themselves in faith and repentance. He has power over death. These are assuring things to John. These are comforting things to John. And then we see the command of the Son of Man. In verse number 19, he tells John to write the things which you have seen and which are and which shall be. John is commissioned here to write this revelation of Jesus Christ. John is instructed to document his visionary encounter with the glorified Christ to serve as the foundation for the unfolding revelation. The present, the past that has been and the present reality of the churches and the things that will be unveiled throughout history. And so he gives a faithful record of this divine revelation to pass along these revealed truths, not only to the seven churches of Asia, but to the church universal across all time. Churches are then urged to assess their spiritual state in the light of God's standards and to make self-examination. They are encouraged to maintain hope and readiness for the fulfillment of God's promises, finding confidence in God's ultimate victory. And then we see the unveiling of these spiritual realities, the mystery of the imagery. We see the seven stars in his right hand symbolizing the seven messengers of these seven churches. That they are held in his right hand with power. He's held, they are held by the power of Christ. 
the messengers of these churches. Not only does it signify the power of Christ working through them, but also his protective and guiding role, emphasizing divine protection for church leaders and their accountability to Christ. And then the seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches, signifying their sanctity and spiritual significance, highlighting how that these churches and that the church are light bearers. They are the bearers of Christ's light collectively and individually. And so we see God working through his church and through these individual particular churches. And he is in the midst of them. This one who is the first and the last. This one who is dead and is alive evermore. This one who has the keys of hell and death. He stands there in the midst of them, present with them. So as we think about these things and as we make our way through this symbol-laden terrain of revelation, we find ourselves in the presence of the exalted Son of Man, the conquering King, the visionary. A revelation that is painted here by the Apostle John unveils Something very majestic, but also giving us a profound revelation of Christ's authority, his sovereign authority over the church and over the nations. This is the risen Christ. So as we continue to look at this and begin now to look at the seven churches, We see that the conquering king is portrayed in his glory and he beckons us to participate in the radiance of his church. So may we walk in reverence, finding comfort in his eternal assurances and fulfill our divine commission to record and understand and discern the spiritual realities that are embedded in the mysteries of the word. In the unveiled presence of this conquering king, let our lives be a testimony of his eternal reign and transformative power. The power that can transform sinners into saints and can recreate this world in him, reconciling the world to his father. In this unveiling we stand at the threshold of a divine summons a call to rally under the banner of the conquering king because that's what happens in chapters two and three when christ starts dealing with the individual churches you see it is a call a rally cry under the banner of the conquering king to be summoned to live in accordance to his will and his service. Let the proclamation echo from the corridors of our hearts to the farthest reaches of our soul. Long live Christ the King! Viva Cristo Rey! The very fabric 
of the world resounds with the majestic authority of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, for he is the Son of Man, clothed in priestly authority and kingly dominion, and he beckons us to this sacred mission, a mission that transcends the boundaries of time and reverberates through eternity to go and teach all nations and baptize them. Go disciple all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded. It's a clarion call to serve. When we see his priestly authority and we see his kingly dominion, it is a call to service to him. To rise up, devote our lives, fortunes, and sacred honor for the advancement and victory of Christ's kingdom. He whose voice thunders like many waters summons us to be bearers of his light, agents of his uh, uh, justice, and ambassadors of his transformative power. Behold the unveiled Christ, whose head and hair are white like wool, revealing purity, wisdom, and eternity. His eyes a flame of fire penetrating the depths of our souls, discerning our motives and igniting a fervor for righteousness. His feet like fine brass refined in a furnace manifest judgment and authority, guiding our steps in the path of righteousness. So in the presence of this conquering king, we receive a commission a divine mandate to inscribe the truths revealed, both past, present, and future, on the tables of our heart and also throughout the recordance of history. We are to proclaim that which we have seen. We are to proclaim that the things which are, and we are to proclaim the things which will take place. And we are to proclaim these things under the banner of the conquering king. That is the message. Jesus Christ is king. Let all the nations fall before him. Jose Luis Sanchez del Rio was a devout 14-year-old boy who, after being captured by the communists and socialists in Mexico in the early part of the 19th century, was asked under the pain of death to give up his faith in Christ. Jose refused to apostatize. His mother was overwhelmed by sorrow and anguish, but she kept encouraging her son. The soldiers sheared off the skin from the soles of his feet and made him to walk through the village to the cemetery. And as he went and walked along, he wept and moaned with pain, but he would not give in. He said along the way, Viva Cristo Rey! Long live Christ the King! And every now and then along the route, they would stop and they would say to Jose, If you cry out, death to Christ the King, we will spare your life. Just say, death to Christ the King. But each time, Jose would answer, viva Cristo Rey. 
Long live Christ the King. And at the cemetery before shooting him, they asked him one last time to deny his faith. And he refused. And then they fired upon him and he died like so many others. During that period of time, Viva Cristo Rey. His story went throughout the villages, encouraging and inspiring others. One such local pastor, Miguel, was inspired not to give in. And so he continued his pastoral duty, even though they had passed a law to restrict and remove the work of the church. Well, eventually he was discovered even though he had disguised himself and went about conducting his pastoral ministry for a period of time. Eventually he was discovered, and he was arrested like many others. And as he stood before the firing squad, he stretched out his arms like Jesus on the cross and declared, Viva Cristo Rey. And they shot him, and he died at the age of 36. That's what the world needs to hear. Long live Christ the King. And may this be the battle cry throughout the corridor of our lives, resounding in every decision, every action, and every sacrifice. For the victory of our conquering King is our anthem, and his kingdom is our eternal cause. Jesus Christ has been risen is risen and he has been exalted with all power and authority in heaven and on earth and he's seated at the right hand of God and he is actively throughout history putting all of his enemies under his feet. Do not fear. He's the first and the last. He was dead, but now he is alive forevermore. Amen. And he possesses He has the keys of hell and death. Today we stand at a crossroads for the church. Whether we will go the path of dedication and sacrifice, our lives being a living testimony of of allegiance to the conquering king, offering up our talents, surrendering our ambitions, dedicating our resources, and sacrificing our comforts in a world that desperately needs the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. May, in the radiant light of his countenance, we find courage to face challenges and the strength to endure trials, all the while proclaiming, long live Christ the King. Beloved, let us not merely be spectators but active participants in the triumph of Christ's kingdom. For every soul won, every heart transformed, and every life surrendered to the conquering king is a resounding defeat for the forces of darkness. Our actions today shape the eternal destiny of souls tomorrow. So as we march forward, let our rallying cry be unceasing, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in the face of adversity, in the midst of triumphs, 
And at the dawn of each new day, may our voices echo the eternal truth that Christ, Jesus Christ, is risen. And he has been made both Lord and Christ. And all authority and all power has been given unto him in heaven and on earth. And his kingdom shall have no end. So with unwavering conviction. And listen, our conviction would be unwavering once we see the revelation of the risen Christ. Let us have an unwavering conviction because we have truly seen Christ revealed. And so there's a call that goes out, a call to serve, a call to dedicate ourselves sacrificially for the expansion of his kingdom and a commitment to triumph in the work of his kingdom. Our conquering king, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. He shall, he has been, he is, and he shall be victorious over all things. The question in, at the end of 2023 and as we enter 2024 is this. Does the church of Jesus Christ actually believe it? Do we actually believe in the risen Christ? Do we actually believe that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Do we actually believe he is seated at the Father's right hand? Do we actually believe that all power and all authority has been given unto him? Not just in heaven, but in heaven and on earth. Do we actually believe that his kingdom will topple all the Antichrist kingdoms in this world? And the only ones that will survive that great shakening is those who are submitted to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to see Christ high and lifted up and seated on his throne. May you help us to not be diverted by all the confusion and all the deconstruction that has taken place in Western civilization. But Lord, may we truly see and believe with eyes of faith that which you have promised and that which you have performed through Christ our Lord is real. It's not just some sentimental statement to help us make it through the day. But it is a reality. Father, we thank you for saving us and sending Christ to atone for our sins and to grant unto us the remission of our sins. Lord, we pray that you would help us to continue to follow him and that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that the church would continue in its growth into a spiritual man, 
created in the image of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.